This morning, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue this morning to look at the biblical view of the relationship between man and woman. I think it's important in our society to be reminded of the truth that our culture does not reflect the biblical view of manhood and womanhood. As a matter of fact, in many churches today, whether the church itself or whether it be with individuals in the pew, they also do not understand what the Bible teaches considering biblical manhood and womanhood. So this morning we're going to look at the second of these messages. Last week we began by considering man and woman being created in the image of God. That is, that is foundational to understanding biblical marriage and the relationship between man and woman. And we pointed out last week that that creation of man was to be in the image of God, a reflection of the glory of God. And before the fall, He reflected that in perfect righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. And how He used a different word than woman when He said male and female, He created them. And we noted there that while both man and woman are equal in the sight of God, in nature they are co-laborers and equal with one another, they are distinct from the animal kingdom as being man and woman or humans. They are also distinct within humanity. There is a distinction between male and female. And this morning we continue to reflect on that purpose, what the Bible sets forth as marriage. I'll begin reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and to the he- of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You may be present this morning and think, what does marriage have to do with me? You may be a child or a young person that's not given a lot of thought to marriage. You may be an adult who is single, a man or a woman. And God's purpose for you, you are following and seeking His will in your singleness. And the Bible speaks to things such as that as well. You may be present this morning and you may be seeking marriage, considering marriage. Or you may have been married, as I have, 27 years in a few weeks. 10 years in a few weeks for Shane and Abby. 
110 for Doug and Judy Wilson. (laughs) Whatever the case may be. Children, adults, married, seeking to be married, might never be married, all need to understand what the Bible teaches concerning man and woman, male and female in this regard. Again, our culture militates against the very verses that we read this morning. We live in a culture you know where now, state by state, almost moment by moment or day by day, same-sex unions are being allowed. And I want to use that word union because it's a biblical word. We'll consider that in a moment when a man and a woman come together in holy wedlock, they become one in Christ. There's a union and a permanence that should never be broken. Our culture militates against that male-female union and now says man and man, woman and woman, same-sex unions should be accepted. Further, cohabitation is not only cultural, but that exists within our churches today. Churches aren't rightly disciplining and teaching that cohabitation is not okay. Now, cohabitation involves some commitment to a relationship, which is different than no habitation. That sexual revolution that some of us grew up in, that you just put it all to the wind and it didn't matter. There was no relationship, no commitment that needed to be given. God just wanted us and created us for sex and that commitment didn't matter. That's different than cohabitation. So we have same-sex unions. We have cohabitation. We have no habitation that has no commitment to a relationship. And now a nuance that flows from cohabitation and no habitation. It's the idea of polyamory. Now, that may be a new word for some of you. Mike Drain probably has never heard the word in his life. That's okay, brother. Polyamory is the idea of open marriages. It's the word that's used culturally today. And an open marriage is you do come together, whether it be in the court or in the church, you are wedded together, you are married But you're free to have relationships outside of the marriage. In other words, they even use the word, you can date other people. And then, of course, one that all of us have been affected by in our lifetime is that of divorce. That also militates against the permanence and the uniqueness of this institution of marriage. So we have all sorts of things that are now accepted in culture, in some places accepted in the church, And these are the things that we need to understand as we consider what God said concerning the relationship between a man and a woman. Now, Genesis 2 is not a second creation or a recreation, but it's a more in-depth commentary by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that gives us in greater detail the significance of, Again, of man as being the apex of God's creation and his creative work. And within that, he unpacks for us what God's purpose was for Adam and Eve, for man and woman on that day. There are three things for us to consider from our text. The first thing that I would ask us to consider in verse 18 is that in God's compassion, he recognized Man's need for companionship. In God's love, in God's compassion, according to His grace, He recognized that man needed companionship. 
God had declared at the end of chapter 1, the six days of creation. He stood back, He looked upon all of creation, and He didn't only say it was good, but He said it was very good. The Lord spoke that His creative work was complete and that it was very good. And yet, in our text, He speaks of one thing that was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. In examining this creation, he looks and he sees all very good except for this one lacking. And this was a purposeful lacking. Was it that God overlooked something or that God forgot to, to enter into creating something along the way? But as we'll see, his purposes uh, and this lack of companionship was given as a means to show man his need for companionship. And he does so in a beautiful way, as we'll consider in a moment. And yet, as God stood back and he looked at all that he created as being very good, and he, he mentions this one thing that was not good, he immediately offers the solution. Doesn't God have a way of doing that? Immediately, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God sent the solution. Genesis 3.15. The first gospel. And then He clothed them with the clothes of an animal. That was the, a sign of something that had to be given in death. A bloodletting sacrifice. And covered them with His own clothing. A picture of His Son, Jesus Christ. Even here, He immediately gives the solution. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper. Not just any helper. Not just from any part of my creation and take from what's already there, but I will make a helper fit for him. And so here we have the beginning of the first marriage. It is the first male-female relationship. We should pause here and ponder something very significant. In fashioning this helper, God did not make another creature in the animal world fit for him. He didn't create another angel or take an angel that had already been created and say, here, have this. Nor did God create another man fit for man. This is crucial. This is crucial in our culture. No, God made woman who alone would correspond, who alone would be fit for the man. And so God as He created that entire universe in all of its immensity, and He looked over every detail with only one thing that was lacking. And again, that was by His divine design in order that man might understand the perfect necessity of woman. It is not good that the man should be alone. And Adam needed to know. He needed to feel. He needed to understand his need and himself long for that companionship. So what does it mean then to be alone? Phil Newton described it this way. He said, Loneliness speaks to the issue of relationships that touch us at the point of our physical, intellectual, emotional, social, and spiritual lives. That's pretty much all of it. Right? Adam had plenty to do. It wasn't that he was bored. He was commissioned with overseeing 
the creation, having dominion and ruling over all things as we saw last week, as being created in the image of God and being His vice-regent. It's not that He lacked for something to do. He wasn't bored. That's not what lonely meant. The key for understanding what is meant here by loneliness is found in that term, fit for Him. That word has been translated as like Him, or as agreeing to Him, or His counterpart, or corresponding to Him. Or if you're a King James Aversion person, that's one of those words we need to hold on to. Help meet. Help meet. Which implies a partner, counterpart to man. So the word helper that we see here is the same word which the Lord used in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, to describe the psalmist in ways of saying, the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. The Lord who is our help declared on that day that He would make a helper fit for. Isn't that beautiful? Helper. So when the Lord created man, He placed within him that intense social and emotional need to be with others. He placed within him that need for companionship. Now this goes beyond that image of God where all men have that vacuum within them as created in the image of God that's seeking to worship, seeking a God, seeking communion. God created Adam and Eve and He placed them in the garden and told them to have communion with Him, to walk with Him. But within that, there was this horizontal relationship that needed to exist between man and woman. That companionship is ordained by God. So while social relationships can, might temporarily arrest this need or this longing, only a marriage relationship can fulfill it at its deepest level. This doesn't mean that simply going through a marriage ceremony and living in the same house will satisfy that longing. There are a lot of people that think just because they get a marriage certificate that everything is okay. That will fix everything. That's not true, and we know that. Because they have a marriage certificate stating that they're in fact married does not mean that they have complete satisfaction within that household, within that marriage. A lot of married people are lonely, even though they live under the same roof. But again, the problem is not with God's institution of marriage. The problem is the fallen relationship that has entered into that relationship between man and woman. So the Lord gives His solution to man's loneliness. It's found in the woman. I will make him a helper fit for him. Woman would be like man in terms of humanity, but totally unlike man physically, emotionally, and socially. The Lord took a rib or part of the side of Adam. And literally the word means to build Eve out of him. And that's very important because it shows that she is every bit as human. The very nature of who he is. But again, God didn't create another man fit for Adam. Instead, God himself declared that Eve, the woman that was taken from his side, is the only one that corresponded as God created to that man on every level. She complimented him at every point. 
And Adam, we know, was quite pleased when he was able to see woman for the first time. So as we begin to consider this idea of marriage, it's important that we begin at the very point in strengthening our marriages or laying a foundation for future marriage or those that are awaiting marriage. Every husband is to recognize that in the wife the Lord has given him, there is this deep, deep level, or should be this deep, deep level of complete satisfaction and fulfillment in that earthly relationship. He or she may not be experiencing that level of satisfaction at this point in their marriage. But that doesn't change the fact that God's way is that they be intimately in that relationship corresponding as He created them for that purpose. And so for some of us, maybe for all of us, there's work to be done in marriage, isn't there? Nobody ever says, or if you were told this, I apologize for them, that marriage is easy. Marriage is hard work. I look at Mike and Susie sitting on the front row, and I pray for Susie. Marriage is hard work. I look at my own marriage relationship. Roger's laughing. We know. We know. Because of sin. Because of those toils and snares and those spots and wrinkles that we do bring into the marriage union. However, what can begin to happen is we start by confessing what Scripture affirms that my marriage counterpart or she who God gave me corresponds with me at every level. That is the biblical reality. We understand that. But yet marriages begin to break down when husbands or wives are trying to find that sense of fulfillment somewhere else. Numerous things come to mind. We can turn to recreation. We can turn to the internet. We can turn to social outlet. We can turn to finances. We can turn to anything else other than our spouse to find that satisfaction. And while some of those things might have their place and might even be important, none of them will satisfy us on that relational level in the human heart as God created man and woman. We must see that, again, God ordained that loneliness for Adam, that emptiness, so that he might find the joy, the delight, the fulfillment that he created for him in marriage. So we too must turn from that attitude that seeks to find fulfillment outside of our spouse. Confess those things to the Lord. Pray that our marriages would be stronger and improve and be a delight as we consider the devotion that we're to have to the One that God has given us. So we see firstly that in God's compassion, in His love and in His mercy and His grace, he recognized Adam's need for companionship, that he was lonely, and there was no one for him. Secondly, we see in God's grace, He prepares man for His companion. He prepares man for His companion. And this is where the idea of intentional loneliness, God's purpose for Adam's loneliness, comes into play. Again, as we pointed out, marriage is the first and most basic of institutions. There are three divine institutions. Marriage and family, government, and the church. Government and church exist after the fall. They're needed because of man's sinfulness. Marriage and family, 
that institution was ordained before the fall. And it is first and foremost, as the Lord laid His foundation of that perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall, that ruptured man's relationships and balance in the world. After stating that man needed a helper fit for him, the next verse 19 declares, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was his name. This is a more in-depth correspondence of having rule, having that, that rulership over his creation. But imagine as God trots the creatures by Adam to name them. By the way, Adam, remember, this is before the fall, perfect knowledge. There is no biologist that ever lived that surpassed Adam on that day. When he looked at a pig and called it a pig, it wasn't just a word he made up. It was something that was unique to the nature that in his great knowledge he understood. An elephant or bee or whatever it might have been. He, he was fitted for that purpose. But yet he began to notice something as they came by. And we'll use the words of Noah's Ark, two by two. He began to notice something. That pig has something fit for that pig. That elephant has something fit for that pig. In other words, he began to see male and female as he named them, named the animals. And so, we see that God in His grace trots all of the creatures in front of Adam so that he can name them as he was called to do. And the Bible attests that. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Obviously, we again know he was a man of extraordinary intelligence. But on that day, what did Adam begin to notice? On that day, what, what was Adam really looking for? The Lord had declared the man's loneliness, loneliness and his divine intention of making a suitable companion for him. And yet as he looked, he's thinking, where is it? So it appears that Adam might have been looking for that companion in the animal world. And yet as he analyzed them, none of the animals corresponded. None of the animals was fit for him. He understood that the animal kingdom was different, unlike you learn in the biology class today that tells you you're part of that animal kingdom. So the naming of the animals, as James Montgomery Boyce wisely asserts, was Adam's first lesson to appreciate his wife to understand his need for companionship that didn't even exist yet. So Adam had to learn, and he had to learn this through naming the animals. And we too might need to learn through other possibilities being paraded before our eyes, the uniqueness of our male-female relationships. As Adam looked at the animals and he didn't find satisfaction, we can't look to our jobs we can't look to our projects, our hobbies, or our social circles. They won't satisfy us on the level that God created man and woman. Just as Adam did not find that deep human fulfillment, that emptiness filled with anything there, neither 
can we? And so, in naming the animals, God heightened Adam's understanding of his own loneliness. In his grace, he brought the animals before him and prepared Adam to understand his need for woman. You understand that? That's beautiful. We might just read through those things and not really see, well, what's going on here? Then there's a third thing that we see. And this is important, obviously, in the passage. In God's providence, He fashions a companion for man. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, He took one of his ribs, closed up its place with the flesh. Some have called this the first abdominal surgery and the first plastic surgery. (laughs) And the rib of the Lord God had taken from the man He made or fashioned or built into a woman and brought her to the man. God, the Creator, fashions the woman and presents him or presents her to Adam. Now the narrative doesn't tell us if any conversation took place between Adam and the Lord as to whether there was a description of what was going to happen. It's unlike when I had problems a few summers ago with this finger. You'll remember that when I had my finger severed and they told me they thought they could save it, I had to sign no... Every time I went into surgery, there was this this understanding that the surgery or amputation, the surgery or amputation, I didn't know until I woke up, in fact, what had happened. But I can remember that surgery and surgeries that followed, that, that deep sleep that they put you under so that you don't feel any pain. I think there's another reason they put us under deep sleep, is we don't need to be the ones to tell them what we need to have done. I think the part of the reason that God put Adam in that deep sleep was Adam's vote didn't count. God created woman out of the side of Adam without him giving any input as to what she should look like, be like, or act like. It was God's creation on that day. So Adam drifted into Never Neverland. He had no input and no idea until after it had happened, what this woman would be. And then God builds the woman from His side. And that's significant because it demonstrates that Adam and Eve had again the same genetic makeup. She was of Him. She was not outside humanity, but because of her heritage in Adam, there persists a continuity, a completeness towards humanity and the human race. It's essential. By the way, as a side note, I've never heard an evolutionist explain how, or to any degree of satisfaction anyway, of how males and females came into existence. The Bible does. So wouldn't you like to have been present when Adam woke up? To have seen the elation that Adam expressed over his first sight at Eve. The Hebrew brings this out. There's a repetition, of the, a repetition of the word this, or this is it. Not to be cad, but children, it's kind of the way it's shazam. Three times we see, this is it. He says, this is it, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is it, 
It's translated she in our versions. But literally, this shall be called woman. And then again, because this, she, was taken out of man. Again, evidently, Adam understood something of what the Lord had done. For at that very moment, he declares that Eve, though she obviously looked different physically, he noticed immediately that she was of the same stuff, the same makeup. As he declares, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she was taken out of Adam. And God presents her. What a beautiful picture. One thing was not good. Man was alone. Here. And He gives woman to Adam. Corresponding helper. And Adam sees Eve as his equal. Not a competitor or someone who is inferior to him. He doesn't see her as merely a baby factory. Here, there's no mention of what is mentioned in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. Childbearing is not in the picture at this moment when he takes Eve from the side of Adam and gives her to him. Yes, she would bear his children, but that wasn't the uniqueness of that relationship. And hear this. Men, women, husband, wives, your relationship is not to be bound up in your children. Your relationship is to be bound up in one another in Christ. And as you model that relationship to your children, rearing them in biblical homes as God suggests here, then your child, your son, your daughter, too will move forward and fulfill God's calling in their life and that purpose. Do you see? Childbearing wasn't the issue here. It was that unique relationship between man and woman. And so we see here, as one writer put it, that Eve is created out of the side of Adam, and at the deepest level, they're equal before God. They're both spiritual beings made in the image of God. They both were under the moral commands of God, and both had moral responsibilities. Both were later guilty in disobeying those moral commands as given to them by God, and therefore they were both judged for their sin. And yet, they're both objects of God's grace in Christ. When He does give that first Gospel, He proclaims it to man and woman and Satan. When He gives that first righteousness, He clothes Adam and He clothes Eve. So there are differences between male and female. Anyone who denies this has shut their eyes to God's purpose of creation and denied reality. But those differences never imply inferiority or superiority. They set forth God's ordained roles for each gender. I've used the word husbands, and I've used the word wives. I've used the word fathers, and I've used the word mothers. That's God's ordained plan for the household. But then lastly, I want us to consider God's wisdom as He declares the companionship between man and woman. As He declares what marriage will look like. With the marital foundation in mind, Moses adds, therefore. Some translations have, for this reason, in verse 24. And that is for the reason that God established marriage. He created male and female in His own image. 
establishing the woman as the perfect complement, the perfect completer of the man. Therefore, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold, uh, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are very, very important words, phrases in that one verse that we need to consider this morning. Especially as it relates what true biblical marriage is to reflect. The first is it is to reflect devotion. Devotion. Marriage is not like any other relationship on earth. It's not like living at home with our parents. I was mentioning to Ed last week that one of the things the church has not done a very good job at, either in the marital counseling beforehand or in counseling afterwards, is this idea of the word leaving and cleaving. Leaving means just that. When you say, I do, it's for the purpose of leaving mommy and daddy. That doesn't mean that there's not an earthly relationship that still exists. But the leaving idea is as a man, a father gives his daughter in marriage, as a son leaves the flock, they are to be united to their spouse and them uniquely. That is the supreme relationship that now exists. And all of the responsibilities that had been that of a father, he is now giving over to a young man as being a husband. Leaving the roost is the idea. Leading demonstrates that all other relationships are secondary. Christ and your relationship first. And then that relationship with your spouse is of utmost importance. The marriage relationship is of such importance and such fulfillment that it demands the establishment of a new home, new traditions, new ideas, a new partnership. In Jewish thought, the home was central to the entire community. Home is where the heart was. Everything gravitated through the home and then through the sanctuary. And entire families, including father, mother, brother, sisters, unmarried aunts, uncles, grandparents, you name it, all of them might live together under one roof. We see that in our day in some places, don't we? But the day came when the single person in the home left to establish their own household. There was a newness, a uniqueness in that relationship in the household with his wife. We experience similar things in our own culture, perhaps when we send our children away to college. That's different when they leave to go to college than leaving to be married. Some of our kids come back from college. We can't get rid of them, right? We don't want to get rid of them in that sense. But that's different than the marriage union. And yet so often in so many households, they treat it as if the kids are just moving down the block. And mom and dad, listen. Get out of the way. Your, your children, as hard as it might be sometimes, when they are in their own marriage relationship, need to learn how to grow through the warts and grow through the difficult times so that they too might understand what true biblical sanctification is in marriage. And so we need to understand the idea of devotion. 
You are devoted to your wife. You are devoted to your husband. And that, apart from Christ, is to be your supreme devotion. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Secondly, there's the idea of permanence. Not just devotion, but permanent devotion. How many of you know anyone that's been through a divorce? How many of you know anyone that both proclaimed to be Christians and went through a divorce? Almost everyone here. Hear this, please. No two Christians should be allowed to divorce. Now here's why. Inasmuch as if we could fall away from the reconciling love of God that we have through Jesus Christ to our God, reconciled to Him because of our sin, no more can we fall away from that. If that's true, then we should be able to be separated from one another in that marriage union. That's how serious it is. What does it say to a pagan? What does it say to a lost person? When two people who claim to have the reconciling love of God in Christ in their own lives can't reconcile their irreconcilable differences. And by the way, that is the number one reason that even Christians give for divorce. I'm going to be hard on this. The church has coddled it too long. The idea of permanence in marriage exists in the Bible and the idea of two Christians divorcing other than the allowances given. We're not going to go there today, but be careful with those allowances. But they're there. But we need to understand our reconciliation to Christ and reconcile within the home. When God said, hold fast to His wife, it follows the newness of leaving or establishing that home. And that term, hold fast, means to join or to cleave to. Literally, it's it's to cement yourself to. You're to be inseparable at the deepest level of your existence. My parents divorced when I was 14. I'm not unique in that. Many of you that are present have divorced moms and dads. And you've carried on in Christ the next generation of what a biblical marriage looks like. And I don't commend you for that. God commends you for that. You stand firm. I know some of you are in the midst of trying to show that to your own families. Because let's face it, it's easier to leave than to stay sometimes, isn't it? Permanence. And again, with our society so marred at an alarming rate and divorces even in the church now, this permanence of marriage kind of takes a back seat to what God's purpose of marriage, of sticking, cementing, gluing ourselves together one with another. Thirdly, there's the idea of unity or oneness. The simple statement, they shall become one flesh, describes the vast difference between marriage and any other relationship. Period. You don't become one flesh with your children. You don't become one flesh with any other human on this earth other than your spouse. In the garden, remember that Eve was fashioned from the rib taken out of Adam. And Roy Ortland Jr. captures the sense of what this means. He said, what does marriage mean? What distinguishes this particular social institution? Moses reasons that marriage is the reunion 
of what was originally and literally one flesh. Out of the side that was broken, He took her. It's that reunion of what was originally and literally one flesh, only now in a much more satisfying form, we would all agree. This is why Ortland said, He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul wrote, No man ever hates his own flesh. Becoming one flesh as husband and wife is symbolized and sealed, yes, by a sexual union. That's true. But the one flesh relationship means more than sex, he says. It's more than what comes together in that way. It's the profound fusion of two entire lives into one. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Is that not humbling when you think about the last argument you had with your spouse? Is that not humbling to remember that your lives are bound up together in the marriage union. It is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. That's what the marriage union, the oneness, should entail. So that means in our fallenness, we must be much more accepting of one another. In our fallenness, we should be much more forgiving toward each other. In our fallenness, we should be more willing to listen to one another. We should be more willing to enjoy one another. We should be able to sit down and share from the depths of our being with one another. Which leads us to the fourth thing. That is the idea of openness. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked. And what? They were not ashamed. Everything was open. Everything was plain. There was nothing to hide. You see that? No shame. Everything that Adam needed when God brought woman to him and he named her woman and yes, he was elated, and, and notice that they were of the same nature, but they did notice they were naked and they were not ashamed. They're, they were so united to one another that in their communication, there was nothing that existed before the fall. Before the fall. Right? The next chapter we see the fall changed everything. Immediately, Adam and Eve fall into sin and then the eyes of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. So what is the significance of the statement about their nakedness and no shame? Nothing was hidden. And the only thing that will hide, the only thing that will seek to bury, is when sin enters in to the relationship. You all know without any training whatsoever that the, one of the number one causes of dysfunction in a home is a lack of communication. There are many things that provide a lack of communication. It could be we're too busy. We've got these little devices in our hands all the time and we're not ever talking to one another. That's a lack of communication. But in its foundational problem, a lack of communication can exist and rip marriages apart because you're not talking about what bothers you. 
You don't approach your husband as a wife and say, this concerns me. Husbands don't approach their wives with an understanding and fallenness that this concerns me and shame somehow is entered into the marriage. Everything's not plain. Everything's not out in the open. You're trying to cover it up in your marriage just like they tried to cover it up in their fall. Now again, we know that communication is hard work. You don't learn communication from through reading a book or going to a seminar or even coming to church and hearing the preacher talk about it. If you're not doing anything else in your marriage today, go home, husband and wife, and talk to one another. Communicate. If something's bothering you, we should be able to share that. We have a relationship as one in Christ Jesus. Be open with one another. And by the way, willing to receive when someone points out your warts, your problem perhaps, in that way. So we've seen here that the foundation for marriage is really set forth in its simplicity with these words. The culture militates against it. Everything the culture sends our way speaks against the uniqueness of God's purpose for man and woman in holy matrimony. So we leave this place today. Do you have a better understanding of the devotion that you should have to your wife? Of the permanence of that relationship? The uniqueness and the oneness that is yours in that relationship? And then are you being open with one another in all things? Marriage hard work. Why is it hard work? Because we're fallen creatures. But yet we're fallen in forgiveness in Christ. Amen? So that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 should write, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And hear this. There are exceptions They would be sinful. Husbands, as you love your wives, as Christ loved the church, your wife will submit. Lovingly, joyfully, without question. But if we don't love her and cherish her and are not devoted to her as Christ was the church, why would she? You see? The onus of this relationship is on you men. Be the husband that God called you to be, and cherish your wife, realizing she's part of who you are, and love her as you love yourself. Let's pray.